0: Section 38 of England Since Waterloo by John Arthur Ransom Marriott. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Pamela Nagami. Chapter 19. Colonial and Foreign Policy, The Dominion of Canada, Part 2. A government which could in one session place upon the statute book Two such measures as the Reform Act of 1867 and the British North America Act had good reason to congratulate itself on its legislative record. Ministers were not less fortunate in their management of foreign affairs. The sequence of events which culminated in the Seven Weeks War of 1866 has been indicated in a previous chapter. The rapid and overwhelming success achieved by the armies of Prussia took the world by storm. But the Prussian victory did more than exclude Austria from Germany. It profoundly affected the balance of power in Europe. France, in particular, was quick to realise its significance. In the autumn of 1865, the Emperor Napoleon and Bismarck had met in friendly conference in Biarritz. The French emperor had then fallen, an easy prey, to the disarming bluntness of the German diplomatist. At Biarritz, Bismarck had secured Napoleon's benevolent neutrality in the coming struggle with Austria by the promise, not too definite, of territorial compensation, perhaps a Rhine province or Luxembourg, or even Belgium. Napoleon had swallowed the bait and had allowed Bismarck to make his plans for the destruction of Austria. But the rapid and complete success of Prussia entirely upset his calculations. He imagined, as did everyone else, that the contest would be prolonged and indecisive, and that after the exhaustion of both combatants he would be able to step in and secure the appropriate reward of a benevolent and impartial arbitrator. Instead of this, he found himself at the close of the brief but decisive conflict a humble suitor to Bismarck for an unconsidered trifle. His first suggestion was the Rhenish palatinate. Bismarck laughed in his face and sent the correspondence to Bavaria to whom the palatinate belonged. The only result was to detach from France an hereditary friend and to cement a prussian bavarian alliance which proved its value in 1870. A demand for Belgium, perhaps stimulated by Bismarck himself, had no better results for Napoleon, but was equally convenient for Bismarck. The correspondence published at the psychological moment in 1870 served to alienate English sympathies from their Willem ally. Luxembourg remained the situation of the grand duchy of luxembourg was peculiar an integral part of the germanic confederation it was ruled by the king of holland whose possession of the grand duchy was guaranteed by a treaty concluded in april eighteen thirty nine between great britain france austria prussia russia and the grand duke of luxembourg its capital was a fortress of the first class and the grand duchy occupied a strategic position of great importance the presence of a prussian garrison was a disquieting fact for holland and belgium and a real menace to france foiled elsewhere by bismarck napoleon opened negotiations with william of holland as grand duke for the purchase of luxembourg the grand duke was not unwilling but the dutch cabinet appealed to prussia who referred them to the treaty of eighteen thirty nine the position of the signatory powers was thus directly challenged, and in May a conference met in London. The tact and caution of Lord Stanley, backed by the Queen's personal intervention with the King of Prussia, brought about a speedy and satisfactory settlement. The Prussian garrison was to be withdrawn, the fortifications of the city of Luxembourg were to be demolished, no military establishment was to be maintained or created there for the future, and the Grand Duchy itself was to be neutralized under the joint guarantee of the five powers. An awkward corner had been skilfully turned. It would not have turned so easily had Bismarck been quite ready for the inevitable war. But if he was not ready, still less was Napoleon. The latter, baffled on every side, now tried to persuade himself and his friends that no territorial compensation was really necessary and that prussia had been in reality weakened rather than strengthened by recent events the accuracy of his diagnosis was to be tested by happenings not distant meanwhile his own prestige suffered a further and staggering blow from the defeat capture and execution of his protege the unhappy emperor maximilian in mexico June 19, 1867. After a session unusually arduous and prolonged, Parliament was prorogued on August twenty-first. The royal speech contained an ominous reference to communications to the reigning monarch of Abyssinia with a view to obtain the release of the British subjects whom he detains in his dominions. These communications proved ineffectual, and in less than three months time the two houses were summoned to meet for the purpose of making provision for an armed expedition to effect the release of the captives at magdala the events which led up to this denouement must be briefly related the story is typical of english relations with semi-civilized potentates and peoples an english traveller mr plowden reported to the foreign secretary lord palmerston on the opening for English trade and on the opportunity for a philanthropic effort offered by a neglected portion of the surface of the great subtropical continent. Caught by the idea of extending British interests, and at the same time of curtailing the traffic in slaves, Lord Palmerston appointed Mr. Plowden, consul at Massawa, 1848. Not content with his routine functions in the island, Mr. Plowden plunged into the domestic politics of Abyssinia. For some ten years he was the right-hand man of the chief king or negus of Abyssinia. The latter, King Theodore, an ambitious potentate, who claimed descent from King Solomon and the Queen of Sheba, desired the assistance of the great white queen against his Egyptian enemies, who threatened him on the north, and the Turks, who were troublesome neighbours on the east plowden was killed in a fray in eighteen sixty and a captain cameron was appointed to succeed him lord john russell was less expansive than lord palmerston in his interpretation of consular duties he peremptorily forbid consul cameron to meddle in the domestic politics of abyssinia and ordered him to attend to his own business or rather that of his employers at Massawa but king theodore was still sanguine as to the results of an alliance with england and in eighteen sixty two addressed a personal letter to the queen requesting that he might be allowed to send a mission to her majesty's court by an error destined to be costly lord russell left the letter unanswered contenting himself with renewed orders to counsel cameron to mind his own business unluckily for himself and for his country cameron disobeyed orders and in 1864 Theodore, impatient for an answer and deeply resentful of the slight involved in the neglect of his overtures, flung Consul Cameron and all the Europeans within his reach into captivity in the rock fortress of Magdala. Between this capital and the coast lay 400 miles of mountainous and trackless country. A formal mission under Lieutenant Prideaux, and Mr. Rassam, a Syrian Christian in the English service, was dispatched to Magdala to demand the relief of the captives. But King Theodore was defiant, and the only result of the mission was that Prido and Rassam joined the band of captives in Magdala. The matter now began to assume a serious aspect. The number of captives was insignificant, not more than thirty in all, but three of them were british subjects and of these two at least had been entrapped in the execution of their duties as official representatives of the british government to repeated remonstrances and requests king theodore paid no heed and in the spring of eighteen sixty seven lord stanley sent an ultimatum to magdala a preliminary survey of the ground which an expeditionary force would have to traverse was made and in August of 1867 the government determined to dispatch it. Abyssinia was treated as within the sphere of Indian politics, Bombay was selected as the base of the operation, and Sir Robert Napier, commander-in-chief at Bombay, was appointed to the command. No better choice could have been made. In January 1868 Napier landed near Massawa at the head of a force of 12,000 men, of whom two thirds were drawn from the Indian army. The main difficulties ahead were those of country, climate, and transport, but no risks were taken. The whole expedition was scientifically planned and carried through with an exemplary attention to detail. By April 1868, Napier and an advanced force found themselves before Magdala, and on the 10th, they swept aside the only serious opposition they encountered five hundred of the enemy were killed and fifteen hundred were wounded nineteen englishmen were wounded but not one was killed theodore then released the captives unharmed but refused to surrender his capital napier was accordingly compelled to storm a fortress of immense natural strength the assault was entirely successful theodore died by his own hand and magdala was destroyed napier's task was accomplished British honor was vindicated, the captives were free. Within a week, the expedition was on its way back to the coast. Abyssinia was left severely alone. The army received the thanks of Parliament, and its commander was raised to the peerage as Baron Napier of Magdala. The compliments were well deserved. The scale of the expedition was relatively small, but the skill with which it was planned and the precision with which it was carried through reflect the highest credit upon the commander and his subordinates. A considerable portion of the cost was charged, not without protest from Mr. Henry Fawcett, upon the revenues of India. But even so, the British taxpayer had to find eight million pounds to extricate a meddlesome consul from a pit digged by himself. Before General Napier had reached Magdala, a change of some significance had taken place in the English ministry. Lord Derby resigned office in February 1868, and Vivian Gray reigned in his stead. That Disraeli should be the next premier was after his long and brilliant services to his party? Inevitable. That he should ever have been called or permitted to render those services may well seem inexplicable the changes in the cabinet consequential upon lord derby's retirement were few lord Chelmsford was dismissed from the woolsack without as he complained even the usual month's notice to make room for sir hugh cairns one of the greatest lawyers and one of the most eminent statesmen who ever filled that high office disraeli was replaced at the exchequer by mr george ward hunt a tory squire with a fund of common sense and an excellent head for business Lord Derby survived his retirement little more than a year. His death in 1869 removed from the stage almost the last of the early Victorian veterans. A devoted churchman, an excellent scholar, a successful translator of Homer, appropriately commemorated in the university of which he was chancellor by a scholarship which is the guerdon of pure classical attainment, a brilliant debater and a sound administrator, Lord Derby never attained to the first rank of statesmanship. His best official work was done before he reached middle life, as Irish secretary under Lord Grey and at the colonial office under Grey and Peel. As leader of the Conservative Party, circumstances were against him. He stood for protection in the heyday of the Manchester School, and although he was thrice prime minister of england he was never in power to his immediate successor he bequeathed no easy task for about ten months disraeli remained in office but as long as the session lasted until july thirtieth it was gladstone who was in power reform bills for scotland and ireland were as already indicated added to the statute book with the assent of both parties apart from this Disraeli could do little to guide the course of legislation. It was Gladstone who proposed and carried a bill for the abolition of compulsory church rates. It was Gladstone who carried against the whole strength of the government a resolution in favour of the disestablishment of the established church in Ireland. That resolution marks the opening of a new epoch in the history of Ireland and a new chapter in that of England. End of section 38.